<clears throat> Matthew chapter 27, verses 20, or 32 through 46. This is the word of the Lord. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then the two robbers who were with him, one on the right and the other on the left, and those who passed by him, by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sambachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? May God add a blessing to the reading of his words. You may be seated this morning. And I do say good morning to you. Thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day. As we continue our series of the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross of Calvary. We come this morning to what is quite possibly the fourth saying of our Lord Jesus Christ from Calvary's cross. You will remember the first saying of our Lord was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second saying of our Lord was to the repentant thief crucified with him at the cross. And he said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The third saying of our Lord was to his mother and to the disciple whom he loved. As he displayed tender compassion toward his mother, saying, Woman, behold your son. Jesus committed his mother, Mary, into the care of the Apostle John. And he said to the Apostle John, Behold your mother. Now we come to what is quite possibly the, the fourth saying of our Lord Jesus Christ from the cross. This saying, quite honestly, is one of the most profound and one of the most difficult sayings of our Lord from the cross. It is found in verse 46. Eli, Eli, lama sambachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This fourth saying of our Lord Jesus Christ is, it is uh, inexplicable. This fourth saying of our Lord Jesus Christ is, is it is unfathomable. Especially in the light of what we know about Jesus. In John 1.14, uh, 
we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about that. We read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word being Christ, the Eternal One, wrapped Himself in human likeness. And we hear that Christ is the Eternal Word. That He has become flesh. And we should. We should stand in amazement as we try to understand the grandeur of that most profound truth that the eternal word became flesh. God became flesh in the womb of a virgin. You should be amazed by that statement. And here again, in Matthew 27, 46, you should once again stand and be in awe of the wonder and amazement that is found in this profound truth. And what is it? We were amazed that we were amazed at the thought of eternal God becoming flesh. And now we should be just as amazed as we read eternal God, the word become flesh, crying out in his flesh. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our Lord is not whispering, but rather he is he is crying out. The cry of our Lord was one of intense mental and emotional anguish. He is crying out, Eli, Eli, lama sambaktani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all throughout the earthly ministry, the earthly life even of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was constantly hearing the Father affirming the Son. At the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father affirmed the Son as being, or the Son, by declaring, This is my beloved Son, Matthew 4.17, with whom I am well pleased. He affirms the Son. At pivotal moments in the life of, of Christ, the Father places his stamp of approval on the Son. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father once again affirmed his Son by declaring from heaven, Matthew 17.5, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. At pivotal moments in the earthly ministry, in the life even of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father was vocal in affirming the love that he had for the Lord Jesus and declaring his pleasure with his Son, his delight in his Son. But now, as our Lord hangs from the cross, beaten, bloody, bruised, and abandoned, He begins to experience in his flesh the greatest pain, the greatest anguish that we in in 10,000 years time 10,000 could never, ever begin to comprehend. He's not experiencing the pain and anguish of abandonment from his followers, but rather he's experiencing the pain and anguish of the forsakenness of his father. For the very first time in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, heaven is silent. For the very first time. And as as if to display the the depths of that darkness, Matthew records in Matthew 27, 45, now from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness covers the land. And in the midst of that forsakenness, in the midst of that darkness, listen, in the midst of that hell, our Lord, in unfathomable agony, cries out, and he quotes the 22nd Psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We will never 
truly be able to understand these words from the point of view of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son of God, made flesh, made flesh for the purpose of saving His people from their sins. He has come. He has taken our humanity. He has uh, joined our humanity to His deity so that in our humanity, as our representative, as our covenant head, He might make atonement for our sins. Our Lord Jesus is there, suspended on that cross, nailed hands and feet, because of who He is. He is on the cross because of who He is. And who is He? He is our federal head. He has come as our great high priest king who represents us to the Father by submitting himself to the Father and substituting us for him. He is standing in our place, brothers and sisters. He is on the cross not because of his sins. The Bible makes it clear that Christ was sinless. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Our Lord is not hanging from the cross, not hanging from the cross because of his sins. But rather our Lord is hanging on the cross because of your and my sin. And because of our sins, our Lord is experiencing punishment. He is experiencing forsakenness. He is experiencing our hell. And this morning, I would like you to notice just three things. Number one, our Lord is obeying His Father. Verse 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me ask you a question and look at me as you think about it. Why is our Lord on the cross? Our automatic response may be, he's on the cross because he wants to take away our sins. And you're not wrong in that reply. You're only wrong in the order of that reply. You're not wrong in the reply that, yes, he died to take away our sins. That's not first, though. That's not the primary truth of why Christ is on the cross. Remember, what is our habit when we come to every text? We look naturally. For ourselves. I said, gave the example. My family was out on an outing. We took pictures. And who was the first person I looked for? Not my beloved wife. Not my precious son. My sinful self. As it is with us when we come to every single text. It is our temptation. It is our habit to look for us. What about me, we say. While it is true that the Lord Jesus Christ is on the cross bearing our sins, it is not the primary truth. The primary, most prominent truth of why Christ is on the cross is because He has submitted Himself, what? To the obedience of the Father. That is the primary truth. That is the number one reason why Christ is on the cross, because He has willingly submitted Himself to the obedience of the Father. The obedience of Christ to the will of the Father is the primary truth, the primary reason why he is on that cross. He is the servant of the Lord. He is not on that cross by chance. He's not on that cross because of the plot of Judas, because of the plot of the Jews, or even because of the cowardice of, of a Roman governor Pilate. Our Lord is there on that cross because of the willing submission and obedience of the Son to the will of the Father. 
He says in John 6.38, I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Our Lord is on the cross primarily because of His perfect obedience to the Father. This is why our Lord is an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Because he has, he has accomplished what no man, none of us could ever accomplish. What is that? Perfect obedience to the Father. That's why his sacrifice is an acceptable sacrifice. Because he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Perfectly obey the Father. Even to the point of death. Death on a cross. Perfect obedience to the Father. But secondly, he is on the cross because... Of the Father's love for His own people. He is on the cross because of the Father's love for His own people. We were lost in our sin. When Adam fell in his sin, we too fell in Adam. We fell in Adam's rebellion against God. And we fell also in our own rebellion against God. Meaning, that Adam represented us in the fall, but we also failed to obey God in our own lives. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Romans 3.23, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were corrupted in our minds, in our wills, and in our, des in our desires. We became the very description of Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become, we have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. We were, as Ephesians 2 describes, dead in our sins and trespasses. And as chapter 5 describes, we were once darkness. We were once Darkness. That is the bad news of the gospel. Never approach someone with the gospel and first say to them, Jesus loves you. You are giving them the cure without finally giving them the problem of their, of their being, which is sin. We, because of our sin and rebellion, have become separated from God. And the judgment of God is upon us. That, my dear friends, is a dismal depressing condition. It is one that caused the men in Acts to say, Brothers, what shall we do? And God would be just to leave us in the dark, to leave us in that dead condition. But what makes the good news so good is that God did not leave us in that condition. What makes the gospel the gospel is that God did not leave us in that dismal, depressing condition, but that He, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 4, by God, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. It was the love of the Father. It was the love of the Father that compelled John the Apostle to write, For God so loved, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. God displayed His love, His great love for His people, by not leaving them in the darkness, by not leaving them to endure the wrath of God. But He, in His extravagant grace, gave up or delivered His one and only Son. Delivered, meaning to death on a cross. Delivered him up. Gave him. Delivered him to death on a cross. 
so that we might be saved. Our Lord is also on the cross because of his own love for his people. It was not only the love of the Father that caused the Lord Jesus Christ to go to the cross, but it was also the love of Christ for his people that caused him to go to the cross. He loves his sheep. He too, he too loves his sheep. The Father sends the Son out of love. The Son goes to the cross out of love. The Spirit enables all of this out of love. Our Lord is not a reluctant servant to the Father. Together with the Father and the Spirit, He loved His sheep from the foundation of the world. This, they together with one voice loved their people. They are His own. They know His voice and He, because He loves them, has laid down His life for them. It is the love of the Father. It is also the love of the Son that places Christ on the cross. He is not hanging there by nails. He's hanging there by love. The question is this then. In light of what we have just said. Number two, here's your second point. What did it mean for Jesus to be forsaken by the Father then? What did it mean for Jesus to be forsaken then by the Father? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let, let me first describe what this does not mean. It did not mean that there was some kind of break in the Trinity. It did not mean that Jesus for one moment ceased to be God. It did not mean for one moment that Jesus ceased to be a part of that eternal triune God. If the Lord ever stops being God, then he was never God to begin with. He is eternally God. It also did not mean that Jesus was merely, listen, feeling forsaken by God. It was not a, 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 he did not say, or even ask, my God, my God, why do I feel forsaken? But that he is forsaken. Why have you forsaken me? The cross and the agony therein, it was not an illusion. It was not a charade. The Lord Jesus Christ was not putting on some kind of show, some kind of drama. The Son of God who humbled himself by taking our flesh was truly forsaken by the Father. But what did that mean for him? I will say as I approach even trying to explain that there are depths that you and I could never ever comprehend concerning this. There is a mystery in the cry of the Savior that is beyond all of our understanding. And at the very same time, we with humility also say that this, this does not mean that we are completely ignorant though of some of the things that it does mean. We can say that the cry of the Lord Jesus Christ was a cry of sinless perfection. Meaning this, that five times in Luke 23, Luke narrates for us the innocence of Christ. Five times there is a declaration of the innocence of Christ. It is a cry of sinless perfection, meaning this. It was a cry of one who was innocent of all sin, of all time. Who was innocent even of, of, of any crime, and yet in agony he cries out in his innocence. It also is a cry of sin-bearing substitution. Our Lord is a public figure, as Adam was a public figure. You, do you know what that means? It means this, that he stood in the place of people. He stood as a representative, as a public figure. He stood as a representative for people. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is a covenant head for his people. He is a covenant representative for his people. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place he stood condemned. In my place, he's standing in my place, he's representing me. It is also a cry of one whose heel was bruised, but whose faith was unshaken. What is that? What does that mean, one whose heel was bruised? It is a declaration of the Father to the serpent in the garden. It is, if you will, the first gospel. John three fifteen. He shall bruise. Who's he? Christ, the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The skull-crushing seed of the woman has come to crush the serpent's head. He is there, taking the bruise on his heel. He is experiencing what God said all the way back in Genesis 3.15. He is experiencing that bruise at that particular moment. He is being bruised. He is being beaten. But he is also simultaneously crushing the head of the serpent. He is fulfilling what God has said in the garden. He is reversing the curse of Eden. And yet, even though the Father has forsaken him, He still cries out, my God, my God. He is the perfect man of faith, even in his forsakenness. His faith does not die. Even in his forsakenness, his faith does not slip into the darkness that covered the land. But his faith shined brightly, even in the midst of darkness. But then again, what did all of that mean for him? When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It meant, now listen close, that for a time, and it is even hard for us to wrap our minds around that statement, for a time, that fellowship with the Father was lost. It meant that for a time, fellowship with the Father was lost in his flesh. Fellowship with the, in his flesh. Fellowship with the Father was lost. It is though he no longer has any sense of, of the Father being his Father, but rather he cries out, all he can say is, My God, my God. Because he has no sense of the Father and that fellowship that he has always enjoyed. This is the only time in all of Scripture that we ever see Jesus not refer to the Father as his Father. But as my God, even in the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, he called God his Father. And just a short while before this on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But now all the Son of God can cry out is my God, my God. God was now out of his reach. They had gone up to Golgotha's hill together. And all throughout the earthly life of the Lord Jesus, he had never known, never not known a day without fellowship with the Father. And now that fellowship is gone. There is no voice from heaven to reassure him. There is no voice from heaven to affirm him. There are no ministering angels to comfort him. There is only silence. There is only darkness. And the absence of the presence of God in his flesh, our Lord experienced the divine weight of the wrath of God that our sin deserved. I'll say that again. In the absence of the fellowship of the Father, 
our Lord experienced the divine weight of the wrath of God that our sins deserved. Brothers and sisters, the absence of the fellowship with the Father is the heart and it is the horror of hell. The absence of the fellowship with the Father is the heart and it is the horror of hell. Jesus did indeed suffer in hell. If we mean by hell this explanation and not the hell that is some caricature of Jesus being tortured by demons with pitchforks, we reject that notion. We also reject the notion that after he died, he went into hell and he suffered for three days. No, he suffered in hell on the cross. God is laying on the sinless Son of God the iniquity of us all. Second Timothy or Second Chronicles five twenty one. God is making Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He is experiencing the weight of the divine wrath that our sins deserve. If someone were to ask you, "What is hell like?" What would you say? You might say fire, torture. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. And yes, that is definitely part of hell. But more than that, and even more torturous than that, why is hell so torturous? Why is there weeping? Why is there gnashing of teeth? Not because demons are biting them. Not because Satan is torturing them. Those who are being tortured in hell are being tortured alongside Satan. Not by Satan. The Bible makes it very clear that hell is the absence of the gracious presence of God. It is the absence of the gracious presence of God. And that is an unending, eternal experience of people who will suffer the holy wrath of God. And the greatest, the greatest agony in that is that God is nowhere to be found. He is out of reach. There is a great chasm between you and him. While on the cross, all of the support that Christ is used to enjoying has been removed from him. He is used to enjoying the the support of the love of God. And now our Lord is alone. Think of that. Just think about that for a moment. The Savior of the world. The Lord of glory. Alone. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and, and studying and preparing, I began to ask myself, but didn't he know that he would be forsaken? Didn't he know the joy that we set before him? Didn't he know that he had a future? Didn't he know that he would rise on the third day? And yes, he did know all these things. But all of those things at that moment were eclipsed by darkness. All of those things, all of those wonderful truths at that moment were eclipsed by darkness. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the significance of darkness that covered the land. It was symbolic of the darkness that covered his human soul. He was entering into the abandonment of God. He was entering into the hell that you and I deserved. He stood in our place for God's glory and for our good. Next and finally, He was being upheld by the Holy Spirit. I wonder if you've ever heard Hebrews 9.14. By the eternal spirit, he offered himself unblemished to God. 
The cross was, was a concerted agreement between the Godhead, between the triune God. It was not something that, that Jesus arrived at on his own. The Bible says in Matthew twenty twenty eight, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was not some mishap on the part of Christ. The covenant of redemption was made in concert. It was made in unity within the Godhead, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet, in the humanity of Christ, even as he, be, as he is being forsaken by God, listen, even as he is being forsaken by God, he is at the same time being upheld by God. Ah, explain that, Pastor. I don't know how. All I know is what Scripture says. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Isaiah 42.1 My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. In all of this, our Lord is being upheld by the Holy Spirit. The forsakenness of Christ is real. He is really being forsaken by God. If it were not real, then He would have not taken our judgment. If it were not real, then He would not have taken our sins. The penalty that God decreed for your and my penalty is a real penalty. Penalty. It is not imagined. Christ was there, hanging on the cross, bearing our penalty. So again, our Lord was truly forsaken. And if our Lord was not forsaken, then you and I will experience forsakenness. But here's the wonderful truth in all of that. The Father was forsaking the Son as He bore our sin and our condemnation And at the same time as he was forsaking him, I believe he was also declaring, never have I loved you more than at this moment, my son. If ever there was a time, my son, when I loved you, it is now. Can you imagine? How do we explain that? How do we make sense of that? I have no idea. I don't know. But I know it pleased God. It pleased the Lord, Isaiah 53, to crush him. To put him to grief. He was doing the will of the Father. He was obedient to death. Even death of the cross. Therefore God exalted him. Highly exalted him to the highest place. Even as the Father is forsaking the Son. In our flesh. As our covenant head. He is also pleased. And glorified. In the penal substituting work. That his Son. Achieved. For those whom he loved. Christ was our guilt offering. He forsook him. God forsook him. And yet at the very same time, he loved him for his active and passive obedience. And I'd like you to think about something for a moment in the statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the cry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in this cry of the Lord Jesus Christ that we see more than anywhere else in Scripture, what sinfulness of sin really looks like. It is here at the cross and in the cry of the Lord Jesus Christ that we see what the sinfulness of sin really looks like. What do I mean by that? How vile must sin be? How horrific must sin be if it took God's perfect Son and God being for, and the Son of God being forsaken in order 
to overcome the horror of sin. How horrific must sin really be then? If it took that to conquer it. If it took that even to go through in order to conquer it. How desperately wicked must sin be? And here, we often ignore the deadliness of sin. How are we to measure how deadly sin really is? It is only when we get to the cross and get a sense of how unimaginable that stench of sin is. It's, it's amazing to me. Some people have a stench and they don't even realize it. It's amazing how some people uh, think that everyone else has a problem, but they walk around not knowing they smell of sin. How deadly. And our problem is that we don't think of sin being that vile. We don't see sin as being that deadly. We don't see sin as being that horrific. We see sin as mere, merely being something that our... We see, sin as, we see sin as just simply mistakes. I just made a mistake. Everyone makes mistakes. No one's perfect. We see it as being things that we just can't help. Since we can't help it, we try not to make too much of a big deal of it. But we don't see the sheer horror of sin. Sin, listen to what it is, at its depths, is rebellion and hatred for God. And it took the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to conquer its deadly effects. When we sin, we repudiate, or we, we reject the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think of sin, we should think of it as this, I am despising God's love. When we willfully and purposely sin, I am despising God's love. I am trampling on His commands. I am repudiating or rejecting Jesus Christ and His cross, and I am mocking His forsakenness. Would you think about sin like that the next time you decide to willfully, purposefully, premeditatively go and sin? I'm despising God's love right now. I am trampling on His commands. I am repudiating or rejecting Jesus and His cross. And I am mocking the forsakenness of Christ. Well, I don't see it that way. Well, how do you see it? Small mistake, Pastor. And excuse it away again. No one's perfect. God is love. I said to our, our class on Saturday, what do you mean? What do we mean when we say, in response to our sin, well, God is love. God is love, therefore what? God is love, therefore you will not be punished. God is love, therefore he will ignore your sins. What does that mean, God? Well, God is love. It means that you enjoy your sin far more than you enjoy or even honor the work of Christ at the cross. We think far too little about sin. We underestimate the power of its stench. And we live in that stench so long that we become immune to its smell. Others can smell it, but we are unaware. It's because of our hard-hearted, callous hearts that makes these excuses for sin. No, when we sin, we reject the love of God, trample His commands, reject Christ, and mock His cross. When I was a boy, and even still today, my love for my mother and my father were enough to deter me from sin. I loved them so much, and still to this day loved them so much, that I would avoid sin because I did not want to disappoint them. 
God was using them as a, as a means of common grace for me. I would do things and say, my father would be proud of that. Or I would not do things and say, my mother would not be happy with that. She spanked me one time with a lightsaber. And while it swung toward my direction, I heard the sounds of wow, wow. You remember, remember that? I do. One of, the, one of the few times my mother spanked me and I never wanted to face Darth Vader again. You may think you're a mama's boy, you're a daddy's boy, I am. But how much more should our desire be to avoid sin because it may grieve or offend or dishonor our God? As Joseph said, even when nobody would know, when approached by Potiphar's wife, no one would know. His response to her is, how could I sin against my God? God would know. God would know. God would know. There was love and devotion to God that Joseph had. How could I do such a thing and sin against my God? The cross is displayed for us in Scripture. Not only as a means through which God has provided salvation, but also as a great antidote for us to avoid temptation. As a great antidote for us to avoid temptation. There is a basic principle for Christians in how we live by looking to the cross. How? How do we avoid temptation? Look to the cross. How do we run from sin? Look to the cross. How could we sin against our God and do such a thing? Why do we yield to temptation, brothers and sisters? It is because we love Christ so little. Why do we yield? Because we love our Savior so poorly. Sin is that vile that it took the cross for us to see what the punishment of sin looks like. And we turn our faces, don't we? We watch the passion of the Christ and we turn our faces. We cannot see because we see horror there. And, and, and what we see really is, is physical horror. We see, wow, someone was completely bloody and beaten and bruised. But what we should really be seeing, the horror that we should really be seeing is what the cost of sin looks like. Not poor guy. Not look at all that blood. Look at my sin and the cost of my sin. That is what we should look at. But then also, we must balance that by not looking into ourselves. Because then looking into ourselves, we become full of ourselves, prideful of ourselves. I was just reading this morning, I I read sermons from our brother Charles Spurgeon as I prepare just to read. And I was reading across this this morning and it says this, Oh, does it not lower the pride of man when we hear the Lord say, Look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, it does not look to your priest and be saved. If you did, there would be another God. And beside him, there would be someone else. It does not look to yourself. If so, then there would be a being who might arrogate some of the praise of salvation. But it is, look unto me. How frequently you who are coming to Christ look to yourselves. Oh, you say, I do not repent enough. That is looking to yourself. I do not believe enough. That is looking to yourself. I am too unworthy. That is looking to yourself. I cannot discover, says another, that I have any righteousness. It is quite right to say that you do not have any righteousness. But it is quite, quite wrong for you 
or quite wrong to look for any, any ways. It is look unto me. God will have you turn your eye off yourself and look to him. The hardest thing in the world is to turn man's eye off himself. As long as he lives, he will, he always has a predilection to look his eyes inside and to look at himself. Whereas God says, look unto me from the cross of Calvary where the bleeding hands of Jesus drop mercy from the garden of Gethsemane where the bleeding pores of the Savior sweat pardons the cry comes look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth yes you are weak and you do love the Savior I do love the Savior poorly which is why we look unto him Because he has perfectly loved the Father. He has perfectly obeyed. He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. So we look unto him. And we remind ourselves that even to look is a work of the Holy Spirit. Even to look in that direction. Don't turn your face, but look to him. Look to him. As Moses said to those who were bitten by the snake, look unto him. Look to that brazen serpent. Look unto him and be healed. Don't turn your face. Don't hide your face. He sees your face. Look unto him and be saved. Look unto him for your salvation. Look unto him for your peace. And we remind ourselves of uh, where we look this morning by coming to the Lord's table. It is the most appropriate way that I could think of to end this sermon. By saying, now come and look to the cross. Displayed for us at his table. In the broken body, in the shed blood of Christ. Look unto him. He was forsaken for you. Who trust and believe. Now come to him. Don't hide your face. Don't be as Adam And try to hide. But look unto him and be saved. Let us stand.